Hi everyone, welcome to Such a Good Feeling, where I get to talk to incredible creatives about the small moments in their lives that changed everything. My name is Steve Anderson and my guest today is legendary songwriter, producer, guitar hero and synth nut, Ricky Wilde. How are you doing? Oh, hello Steve, uh, what a lovely introduction. Well, you are a bit of a gear and synth head, aren't you? Let's be honest. Oh, well, I guess I am, yeah. <laughs> I have to be honest. <laughs> I mean, I'm looking at you in the studio and there's it's mainly guitars and platinum and gold discs in there, but uh, I know, oh, you know, a lot of, uh, a lot of years the of, Years of collecting, mate, and I can't, I can't once you, you know what it's like, Steve, once you buy something, you can I know. never sell it, can you, really? I know. Isn't there a big guitar in your garden as well? Yes. I is. seem to remember there's a big guitar in your garden. There's a great story behind that guitar, you know. Go on. Yeah, okay. A, a very dear friend of mine, he used to work um, for a company that promoted computer games. Mm. And one of them was Guitar Hero. Yeah. So his company was doing that and he put on this big, massive convention for it. And he contacted Gibson and asked them to make um, 10 foot high guitars of of different, well, they're all Les Pauls, but they're, they're all kind of like different styles. So one was Nirvana, one was Oasis, uh, one was Lenny Kravitz. And so there's, I think there's five of them. And so Gibson made those five guitars and um, and they are beautiful. But and I went around his house and we were like chatting and I looked in his garden and there was three of them there. And I said, where did you get those from? And he explained the story. I said, wow, they are beautiful. Anyway, I didn't think anything about it. And he phoned me up about a year later and he said, Rick, I'm getting married and I need some money and I'm selling them. Do you want one? And I just nabbed it off him. So that's where it came from. So it's, Wow, uh, okay. Yeah, that's, that's a really like, good story. And there's only five of them. So, only five, and you've got one? One of them, yeah. No, yeah. it's a it's a, it's a genius thing. It's very striking. Oh. Uh, I remember that from when because I was uh, I was lucky enough to be on your uh, podcast last January in the freezing cold January before anyone was staying yes, at home. Right. We I just uh, had a lovely lovely chat with you and the brilliant Lee Bennett and uh, and I, and I really really loved uh, I loved that podcast series. I'm I'm keeping my fingers crossed for a season two of that. Oh yeah, well me and Lee we've been talking about that and and Jakey as well, J Jake. Yeah. He's been um, like saying we should be doing more, and and you know it's like you, you get in the studio, you start working on stuff, and he's like, yeah, must 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 do it, must do it. But there's so many other things to do. I well. know it's it's the right time, but I I love the uh, you know I found I, I found it fascinating and found that you know you had some really truly fascinating people on there. Oh, and thank some, you. And uh, yeah, some some great stories and some great uh, some great yeah. characters. You don't really get feedback on podcasts, do you? Because people listen to it and then they're yeah. on to the next one. So it's not like um, it's not like a buying a record where it, where it charts. I know, yeah. It's just like you, you'll get listeners, and and that's wonderful. But you don't know what people <laughs> actually think of it, you know. Yeah, yeah. So, so it's lovely to hear those words. No, it's really good. It's really good. So I always like to start by kind of talking about. The kind of music that um, that was in in your house as a kid, and obviously, you know, having a mega famous sixties idol as a dad, um, I'm sure there's music all around everywhere. But before you got into, well, in your well, most people's case, uh, buying records; in your case, making records when you were sort of ten or eleven. But I mean, what was the musical landscape of the of your house when you were growing up? Well, there was always music playing. Um... Both mum and dad were, were, were massive music fans. Mum used to listen a lot to Carole King, Joni Mitchell, um, 
dad used to listen to a lot of Elvis. Um, and yeah, I, I kind of like, as I was growing up, I, I, I used to I was like loving bands like ABBA, um, Queen, or anything with lots of harmonies. I, I love harmonies. And um, so I was kind of very influenced by that. I, I loved all the glam rock stuff, you know, and David Bowie, obviously, I, I was a huge fan of, of Bowie. Um, so yeah, it was, yeah, I was always, I always loved a good melody. I love pop records, but um, but I love the good, I love the grunginess of guitars. And when punk came in, that was a, a game changer for me. And and Gary, of course, Gary Newman when he came in, that that for me, hearing synth played that way and and uh, utilised in records was just fascinating and and so inspiring. And um, <clears throat> yeah, it was a wonderful, great days, great days. It really did set me up, but. Um, but yeah, there was always you know, guitars hanging around the house, and I was like, I taught myself guitar because. Uh, what what age would you remember? What time you what age you were when you first picked up a guitar? Yeah, I was probably about nine, I think. Okay. And um, yeah, my my, my dad's uh, all my my dad's guitars were like laying around the house, and I just I just loved the look of them and and the, the way they were made. I, I was fascinated by all the different woods and and the texture on the front and the colours and the and the sound and I was just always fascinated by it. And so I thought, well, I better learn to to play to play one of these things. So um, and how did how did you go about teaching yourself? Because obviously there's no YouTube tutorials. So was it asking your dad what the chords were or just figuring it out for yourself? Yeah, dad taught me um, Little Brown Jug. And that's the first thing I learned to play. So is that a D, um, then G, then A, then back to D again. And those three chords um, I learned. And once I kind of like got the the hang of how that worked, then yeah. I just worked out the rest of the chords. And um, I, even to this day, I, you know, I wish that I'd have had lessons because I'm still discovering chords now when I play. And I think, wow, that's a lovely chord. And and um, you know, a lot of the chords I probably had I've had lessons, I would have learned a lot quicker. I mean, but... like all the chords that are in Nick Kershaw songs. You mean? <laughs> yeah. No, no, not that many. <laughs> <laughs> that's that. So that was. And were you kind of playing along? Sort of. Was it was that thing you heard something on the radio, or you heard something it was like, oh, I wonder what that is, and sort of played along to it. And um, yeah, I've, I've, I'm very lucky, Steve, in that um, if, I, if I know a song in my head, I can play it immediately on guitar. I don't need to find chords and um, and same with keyboards. Because um, I had I actually did have piano lessons, but, um, but yeah, so I, I can, if I hear a song and, and, and I know it and yeah. I love it, then I can play it. Yeah. So it, it's, uh, it's just a... a a, a lucky thing i think i don't i don't think it's it's, it's a by ear thing it's it's amazing actually there's been it's amazing quite a few people that i've spoken to on this podcast have that same thing where there's a bit of musical knowledge but actually the thing that's helped them the most is just being able to go oh okay i know i know that or if there's one thing you don't it only takes a couple of goes for you to just figure out what it is yes yeah and um so yeah i i've, I've always been, you know loved being able to play other people's songs that i love you yeah know, it's it's a great thing to do to be able to do and i love it so you had that incredible kind of moment where you know you you have the sort of child star story yeah I had a number one in Sweden. I know you had a number one in Sweden. I know <laughs> it wasn't. It wasn't. But how did that? How did that all come about? I mean, was it literally because was it to do with the fact of 
you know, because of your dad or was it something you were pushed? How, how did you, how did that whole thing happen in the first place? Do you know what? It's really weird. I can't actually remember how it started. Well, I mean, you were only about 11, so that's fair enough. Yeah, I, I, I was very young. And um, uh, I remember dad saying, look, you know, do you, do you fancy having a go at singing this song? I've written this song called I'm an Astronaut. And do you fancy singing it? And I said, yeah, why not? You know, and then the next thing I was in the studio and then, I was like, had my headphones on and the microphone in front of me, and I, I was feeling very grown up and and yeah, thinking, wow, this is amazing. Um, and then another one I was asked to record, then another song, then another song, and before I knew it, there was like five or six songs that were written. Uh, and then the next thing, it was released in um, well, all over Europe, but then it got to number one in Sweden and it just went mad. And because of that, there was a bit of a story and that kind of reflected back into the UK. So I did a few um, kind of PAs, let's say, over here. And there was lots of screaming girls. And then I was in record shop signing doing signings and it, then it was absolute pandemonium and mayhem. And um, it, was, it was a crazy old time. And then... Um, yeah, and then it kind of stopped for, um, I think I, I kind of reached an age where I, I just didn't didn't really feel it anymore because I was going to secondary school hmm. <laughs> um, and it was an all-boys school and it wasn't, let's say I wasn't as popular as some of the other boys. Right. And uh, and I had quite a lot of stick because of the, uh, being on the front page of magazines like Diana. Right. Twinkle and things yeah. like that. So those are uh, like, you know, pictures of me smiling with very long hair and flowery shirts. And so I did, um, I did get a bit of stick at school. And so that I kind of knocked it on the head. But after that, that kind of like, it, it kind of turned me off being wanting to be an artist. Because mm. um, I thought well, that's the downside you get. Um, I know the upside was nice, but the downside was pretty crap. So, um, so I thought, no, I don't really want to do that anymore. But um, but I did, I did want to be involved in music and I wanted to write music and create music. Um, and I wasn't really sure how to do that without being an artist. So, um, so at that point, I, I kind of like thought, well, I guess I've got to be an artist. I, I, I couldn't really see, I didn't know anybody else that could sing. So uh, yeah, I went into a, a local, like an eight track studio in Luton called Quest. And, um, and I just recorded I think it's four tracks, uh, two of them I'd written myself and two of them I think I'd written with dad. And so I then took them around to a few labels. I've got a bit of interest from a couple of them. But the main one that really sort of pressed my buttons was from uh, Rack, Rack Studios, Rack Records rather, um, Mickey Most. And Mickey saw something in me and my writing and um yeah, he, so he called me back and said, "Look, I really like like the uh, the demos. Why don't you come into into rack and re-record them? You know, as 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 a proper record with a proper record producer." So I thought, wow, you know, that's, that's interesting. But but I actually I was really happy. But at the same time, I I, I didn't feel that great about someone else producing it because I wanted to produce it. But I thought, you know, you've got to play ball. I was only, just, what, 17, I suppose. So I thought, okay, what the hell? So I went in there um, and there's a, a, another producer. His name was Steve Glenn. And um, so Steve was, uh, 
kind of like given the task of, of working with me and I, I was obviously very opinionated as to, as to what I wanted and how I wanted it to sound um, and yeah so uh, there was a one point I said to Steve I said yeah this song here needs um, some backing vocals um, I know my sister Kim she does a few backing vocals I've heard her sing around the house so maybe Kim could come in and do the backing vocals unless you've got anybody else that you use and he said no no come on let's bring let's bring Kim in obviously she was a lot cheaper than a session singer as well so so she uh, so she came in bless her and um and as she was recording the backing vocals Mickey came into the studio <clears throat> and said to Steve she's got a lovely voice and she looks great and um he said to Steve, so maybe we could um, maybe we could do something with Kim as well then. Maybe we could do something. Maybe we could, you know, sort of produce something up for her. So that was my cue. So I got in the car straight after that session, drove back home, and I said, Dad, Mickey sees something in Kim and wants to do something, but I don't want them to do it. I want, I want to do this. So he said, right, okay, so we need to write a song. I said, yeah. So we need to write a song for a, we need to book a studio in Hartford, um, which was owned by a band called the Enid, who are like a prog rock band. Um, and being a, <coughs> being a, a, a prog rock band, they had, they, they lived in a commune. It was like a, a massive house. <coughs> downstairs was the, the studio in the basement. And when you walked downstairs, there was just synths everywhere and they were all state-of-the-art like um, Moogs, um, Yamaha, CS80, Selena's, um, it, it was just a, an array of incredible synths and guitars and basses and drums and it was just such a vibe and I was like a kid in a sweet shop you know it was like uh, after hearing all these incredible synths um, on record by bands like um, John Fox and Gary Newman and Ultravox. Um, I was so turned on to that sound and that's how I wanted it to sound. And there, behold, was all the sense that you could get these sounds in front of me. It's just like, wow. And what a buzz. I was honestly a kid in a sweet shop. And um, yeah, so, so then we went into the studio and um, we were still writing Kids in America as we were recording it. We, uh, Dad was kind of coming up with lyric ideas and, um, and I was coming up with different chord changes and different parts. And um, I, I finished up playing, uh, I think I played everything on Kids other than maybe not the bass. I think Steve played the bass, um, who was one of the, the engineer, who's the bassist in the unit. <clears throat> and he, I think he finished up playing bass, but I did all the guitars and all the synths and, and Chris North, who was the drummer as well for the Enid, he, he, he played the drums on it. Um, and it was recorded and written within three days. And it was almost, um, it was pretty much there. And the mix I was quite happy with. But being only 18 then, I guess. I wasn't, um, I wasn't, I, di I didn't really know much about mixing. Um, and so I, I but I was happy with the sound. It kind of had the, all the energy and all the, the sounds that I wanted it to have. So I took it up to Mickey and, um, and I, I remember playing it to him. 
um, it was on a cassette and he played it and he just, his face lit up and he looked at me, he goes, Rick, that's a hit, mate. You've got a hit there. And honestly, that, that, that feeling, you knew when Mickey Moe said that's a hit, it was a hit. It was going to be a hit. And so I was just so relieved and happy. And also he, he, he just loved the whole sound of it and everything. So he, he said, uh, he said, look, you know, you better go in and do, you know, get some, get some more out of me. So at that point it was all queued up. Um, but then, um, the contract had to be sorted out between Kim and Rack as an artist, me as a producer for, for, for the project. Um, and that just went on and on and on and took ages. I took about a year to, to do, um, for whatever reason, I don't know why, but it just did just took so long. Um, and then eventually it was released and I think it started, it did so well in the first couple of months that the chart thought it was being rigged and they pulled it, it, it got, it, got, it, it charted it, it like fairly, really low, about 60, but it had been selling thousands a day and, but because they thought it was being rigged, um, they, they pulled it and basically they didn't allow a load of the sales. So that's why it charted at 60. Um, I don't know how Mickey proved that that wasn't the case, um, but he did manage to prove it. And then the next, the next week it, it just flew in and then it just finished up just getting higher and higher and higher and finished up at number two. But we, uh, I think we were knocked off it by Berlin or someone like that. No, it wasn't Berlin. Maybe Shaking Stevens or someone like that. Yeah. I don't um, but yeah, but it went on to be number one all like all over Europe, and and that was the the thing that kicked it all off. And then Mickey said, "Well, you better go in and do the it's album." Awesome. And it's kind of like, wow. So it's uh, yeah, amazing, amazing times. They like, really were so exciting, and hearing Kids in America on Newsbeat for the first time on radio was electric you, you just you know my heart was just beating and thumping and i was so so happy it was wonderful days when you just just going back quickly onto the process of that from the from kind of you and your dad saying we need to write a song i mean was the entire song conceived in the studio as you walked in there or did you have a, an essence of an idea of the title or was it kind of written on i mean was it written on a guitar was it written on the synths it was written on a wasp, it's called. And a wasp is a little keyboard. It's like a little synth that I bought myself. Okay. Um, I actually, I've got it here. This is my wasp. So did it, oh, there you go. He's actually there showing me the wasp synth. That's and the was, actual one. And was it actually, so the sort of arpeggiated, the very famous arpeggiated beginning was, was part of it? Anyway, yeah, the, key, the keyboard was a bit like a stylophone where you 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 touched it and it yeah. played. There wasn't like keys, as in like a key on a piano. Yeah, yeah. Weighted keys or anything. It was literally just a like a stylophone. Was, yeah, yeah. Just a monophonic little thing. So, but you could you could like tune. There's a couple of oscillators, so you could tune it with with fifths. Yeah. So which can be like a minor or a major, yes. and it kind of gave you the feeling of, of of a little chord. Yeah. So you could kind of like play all these 
um, little little parts, but you could also put an LFO on it to give it a rhythm, so you could have it go. So, so, so that's how it's written. Um, the basis of the song was written on the wasp. Um, that the night that I came back, it literally was. I came back and I said, I "Need to write a song for Kim." Um, you know, let, let's let's get the basis of it, and then I'll put the studio tomorrow. So literally that evening. 90% of it was of the music was written then. And an, an incredible adaptability of your dad, who's a huge rock and roll star, writing a song on a synth. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's like, yeah. you know, I think that's, uh, that, that, that's a huge thing. And, and I guess... Dad is a huge lo- lover of, of technology and... Um, yeah. He, he, yeah, he loves yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, that, that, that's amazing. But I think that, I think it, it felt like it had to be, that. it felt like it was written on that. And I think you now also talking about, obviously your love of, of Newman and particularly John Fox, you yes. know, you can almost hear Newman singing that first verse Absolutely. so easily, you know, it's in that. Well, the, all that, those melodies, um, da, 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 yeah. da, 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 I mean, that is so, that is so Newman. And, it's Newman and Human League and all that, all yes. the songs that, the yeah. stuff that was inspired. I mean, you know, I imagine that you, like myself, were so inspired by Dare and oh, just. Absolutely. My, my, even to this day, my, probably my all time favourite album. I was, it's so inspiring. I, I was talking to someone about Dare the other day and uh, Dare by the Human League. And I said, and you and I probably have exactly the same experiences. Uh, I I can literally remember the day I went out and bought it and the day I bought it home and just literally put the vinyl on and just sat there. And there was the two thoughts in my head were one was kind of amazement and the second one was how. How? (laughs) It was just so clean and so minimalist, but everything sounded so massive. Yeah. Nothing on it. It was just that had this beautiful clarity and phil's voice was oh it's just beautiful you know and it, and the lyrics were gorgeous like open your heart i mean what a beautiful oh, I know. lyric and, just majestic and, um, love action you know and all those yeah. synth sounds it was incredible album and martin russian genius i mean total total, the, total genius the guy just worked with so many different john i mean he did all the strangler stuff but yeah. then you know the, then then he did um Claire Grogan stuff, lots of images stuff, you know. He was kind of like all over everything in those days. But to make a record like that was just so inspiring and so different and fresh and it was fantastic. It was it was amazing. Just on a, on a, as we're on the synth nerd stuff, I've I've always wanted to ask you and I never had, what was what made the car horn sound at the beginning of Kids? Moog. It was a Moog. Yeah, it was all Moog. <laughs> was it all was, it wasn't a Moog preset called Car Horn, was it? <laughs> <laughs> it's literally that that whole intro all those synths were was uh, was done on a moog and we recorded um i just recorded about 15 or 20 tracks of just all these little noises and amazing changed all the, the little sounds as i was doing it and and then we just bounced that down onto to two tracks a little stereo yeah uh, for, that, for that intro yeah that was a, a lot of that was was um from Roxy Music, I was a massive fan of, of Roxy Music and Brian Eno. Um, it's um, like, like uh, Street Life. Yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. Of course. Yeah. The, the intro to that where it had all those lovely synths, um, and but it really gave you the feeling of actually being in in, in the in a street in America. You just had this feeling, and and that's what I was trying to kind of recreate on that on that intro. Amazing, and of course that gave you your 
kind of for all, really pretty much the signature sound for well for you and your sister I suppose as well but it was you had that with the the, the sound of kids in America moved carried on through checkered love and pretty yeah. much everything on that record had a had a particular sound to it which was you, you know we were talking earlier about sort of like almost new wave synth pop yeah, yeah. um but guess... with with glorious anthemic widescreen choruses yeah yeah that that, that was all, that was always our the most important part of a song for, for me is is especially then it was a, a, a chorus had to just hit you between the eyes and whether that be lyrically or melodically or sound production wise it had to just be massive you know so the moment that hit you that was like the thing that was gonna take you away to, to where you wanted to be musically you know so it, it, that was very important to have a big chorus um, but yeah, I mean, I, I, was, so I was getting into really into punk as well. So, you know, all those clash in and Sex Pistols and Stranglers, especially, I, I was a massive fan of. And um, all those lovely big guitars and big grungy guitars and attitude. And so it's kind of a mixture of, of, of that, along with Ultravox and John Fox and... Um, and Gary Newman, you know, it's kind of like the two amalgamated, but with Kim singing. So it just had this kind of fresh freshness about it, I think. So did you go back after doing that? Was the studio that you recorded kids in, did you go back and make the rest of the record there or did you make it at Rack? And, and what was the, you know, back then from someone saying, we think we've got something. I know the contract took a long time, but I mean, beginning to end, how long do you, do you think it took to make that first record for Kim? It didn't take long, it only took a couple of months. Um, right. Not whack, not even that, I think about six weeks, I think. Okay. Uh, so and then did you just bring tons of synths into rack then? No, no, we just took the, took the tapes in. All oh, right, because you'd had the, yeah, yeah, you had yeah, it. So we'd recorded pretty much everything at rack. At the Enid. Uh, sorry, yeah. at, the, at, at the Enid, yeah. At Enid's, the Lodge, it was called, at the yeah. studio. Um, so we've recorded everything at the Lodge and we brought the two inch tape to mix it at, um, at rack. Um, Mickey just wanted to mix it there. He knew the sound of the room. He knew how he wanted it to sound. And um, he, he, you know, he was um, massively instrumental in, uh, in the mix inside of that, of that first album. Though he never took credit for it, bless him. Um, but he was, uh, yeah, he's a massive influence on, on my life, my whole life, actually, uh, Mickey. Even to this day, I've, I've got a picture of him in my studio. Um, and he, yeah, he's a very inspiring guy. Very inspiring. Yeah, absolutely. And I miss him, missed him terribly. So, um, but yeah, he was a, he was a massive, massive part of my um, learning process in the studio. Yeah, and incredible, incredible belief. But at the same point, he didn't ask you to go home and write a song and bring it back. You, that was your own initiative because you, you could see, you know, even at that young age, you could see there's a possibility here where another producer was going to come in and take yeah. over and you had a, a vision yeah. And I think possibly because you'd had that little brush with a bit of a pop style thing, you thought, well, maybe that's not for me. Yeah. But I, this is a way of me doing this. With, was, you know, it was uh, three bells came down when 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 he said that to Steve. Yeah. Uh, you know, the the three bells came down for me, and it's kind of like this is this is this is perfect. Oh, this is you perfect. Can, you can stand there, produce it, write it, stand on the back yeah. playing guitar, and push her to the front. <laughs> exactly. So I had the dream. The dream was there, and I had the vision. It just yeah. All I had to do was just do it. And yeah. 
and I kind of did. I, I think I think Mickey saw in me that that he saw that I, I had that kind of drive and that focus, and I, I was I was always really driven and hungry, and I, I really wanted it. And I think he saw that in me. So um, yeah. So off the back of the first record, I, I imagine you're. Uh, you know, with all the promo and everything else you're doing with your sister, I imagine because of the way things work then, literally the moment the first record's out, they're starting to talk about the second one. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so, so I imagine Select came, you were almost writing it at the same time as you were promoting the first one. Yeah, that, that took like eight months to record. I mean, that just took so long. And obviously from, it, it, was, a, it was a, it was a real tough one for me that was because the first album had been recorded so quickly and it was so easy because i had i was I, as i said earlier i had access to to all those beautiful scents and beautiful guitars and sounds and and vibe um and then i was kind of like um I was told that they wanted me to record it at Rack, which was, don't get me wrong, it's an incredible studio. It, even to this day, it's probably one of the best studios in the world. I mean, it's incredible, and they've got incredible equipment there. Uh, the desk is fantastic, but it wasn't what I was kind of like. That wasn't my, let's say, well, there wasn't any synths or, or anything there. No. I, I went out and invested in a, a Jupiter 8 and um and i i bought a couple of guitars as well so um i i did have that but it, it just wasn't quite the same it didn't have the same vibe and i i just felt it was hard i felt i found it really hard it wasn't and and also i think the first album you, you know you've you got all those energy all that energy and excitement and then being told okay that's been a massive success you've got to do it again it's kind of like oh Okay, now it's it. Now, now it's a job. Yeah. Now I've really got to make it work, you know. And uh, and so I, you know, I look back on those days and I, and I think, how did I do that? Because the output was was colossal, you know. And and it's, and, and it's still you and you and Dad writing everything on the second one as well, right? Yeah, it was. Yeah, yeah. And um, and it was, you know, I did. I, I found it, it, yeah, quite hard, quite hard. But I, but I still loved it, and it was still really vibey. Those <clears throat> meeting incredible acts that were work out. The Thompson Twins, I think, were there at the time, and I got friendly with them. And, um, <clears throat> and there was, um, I think, the Police even came in one of the days and played bass on one of the tracks. Oh my god! Wow. The Sting, because um, yeah, because uh, uh, one of our uh, guitarists at the time was a guy called Henry Padovani, and he was in a band called the Padovanis. Um, and he was then poached by the police and he was the original guitarist, but they did a few gigs and they didn't think he quite cut it for whatever reason. And so they chucked him out and brought in Andy Summers. Um, and then Henry uh, joined us in the Kimwa band. And so he was recording some guitars, doing a few bits and pieces in the studio and police were next door obviously he, he's gone down there said hello to the boys brought up um sting and so he said yeah sting do you want to play bass on this track which was never used because the drums were shit which is <laughs> so annoying but <clears throat> yeah but it was um yeah great was so exciting those days because you you just didn't know who was going to be there who you're going to meet and 
all the different producers. Yes, we were in there at Chris Squires, and it was just like amazing, you know. Um, you just you just kept bumping into like massive stars. Ultravox when we were in there one of the days, and you know meeting those guys was amazing. So yeah, it was incredibly vibey. Um, yeah, that's the thing that I sometimes talk to kind of people about, and more sort of younger people is you know if if you forget you know before pandemics and stuff when we had to kind of do things like this, even then you know there were less and less moments where there would be a big studio with four different artists in it, and you know my. My experience was of it was at Psalm where you didn't know you were in your little room for the day and then it came to dinner time and you're sat around a kitchen table and it, you have no idea who you're going to be sat opposite. But it's ah. normally but it's the same as what you're saying, you know, or someone just pokes their head in from another studio saying, what are you doing? Yeah. And creatives love being around creatives. Oh, and it, honestly, I'm, I'm still I, I still get that that same buzz, Steve, whenever, whenever I see anybody that's uh, that, I, that I respect as a musician or, yeah. or as the producer i still get that 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 goosebumps when i meet them me too and yeah. it, oh wow i'm so that's so lovely talking with them and uh and it is it's a, it's a wonderful thing I'm, I'm still a fan at heart of uh, of these people and, and and the music they make and how they do it and i I'll always i've always felt really overawed by by those creatives you know yeah yeah definitely so the, the 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 whole process continues. I mean, you I'm imagining it's just album promo, album promo. You're in the studio, you're doing everything like that. You know, yeah. another couple of albums come and you know, it's you're again getting to do everything you wanted to do. When it gets to just moving it forward a bit to the first time that I think that I'm right in saying the first time that you do something that isn't uh, an original, which is when you look at covering Keep Me Hanging On, whose idea was that? Well, that was that was a weird one because that wasn't. I didn't. I didn't go in with the idea of saying let's do a cover of this um, and, and work on the chords. I was actually writing um, for for a, uh, step, uh, another step. I think was it, was it on the album. I think it was another step. With Junior is on the album. Yeah, <clears throat> yeah. And um, so that was the uh, that was the album, and I was still writing for that. And uh, I had a Lin nine thousand and it had all these little pads and you could put it on a loop and just hit the, all these different velocities and record live as it was going around. Um, and it would just add layer upon layer. And I just programmed a marimba um, on all the pads. Um, and I came up with that, that whole of the intro of that digga digga ding digga 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 I just thought, well, that's really nice. That's got a nice little vibe. Um, but then I thought, well, you can't just keep on that. You need to obviously give it some movement. So I, I just, the first chords that came into my head were those with the same, with the chords that it goes into with those, with that nice Schiffer pad that comes in with it. So I, I just put those and so I'm thinking, trying to, trying to come up with a melody for it. And I just started singing, set me free, why don't you, babe? I thought, well, that sounds right. It's, it's got that vibe, isn't it? I thought, hang on a minute, we haven't done a cover. Why don't we do a cover? And so I just thought, well, let's record it as that. And with the possibility that we could just take the top line off and maybe rewrite it or something, but maybe not, maybe do it as a cover. So it was kind of... It, even when we were recording the backing track for it, it still wasn't definitely it was going to be a cover. Um, and then Kim came in and Dad was there as well, and we were like chatting about it. And I said, maybe we, maybe it's time to do a cover, you know. And um, so we 
So we started recording. I thought, this is sounding good. I'm liking it. I'm actually really enjoying recording a cover. And uh, then we put the guitars on and then we put, um, uh, uh, programmed all the, all the kit. And I think the snare was um, a sample of Addicted to Love mixed in with, you know, that big, lovely big snare thing. Yeah. And I think the first, the first thing you hear is that big snare. So I just lifted that off and sort of mixed it behind another snare. And so it just had this big snare thumping through. Um, and so, yeah, I thought, yeah, this has got a vibe. I'm liking this. So, um, then we spent like uh, probably two days mixing it. Um, I was with uh, my 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 best mate at the time, um, Pete Schwer. He's still a dear friend of mine. He he was my best man at my wedding, but he was uh, he's a lovely, lovely man, an incredible incredible talent as well. And I was like hitting the red wine in the studio, and Pete was doing his wizardry on the on the uh, mixing desk and making it all sound great. And uh, so we did a mix and, and I thought it sounded okay, but I thought that there was more in the mix. Um, so um, Pete said, look, it's, it, it's two in the morning. So I think it's time that we, we left it now and put it to bed and then we'll come back and do something tomorrow. Okay, fine. I said, you're hundred percent happy for me to just fuck about with this. When you've got, he goes, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm really happy with the mix. Right. Okay. So he, Pete went off. And I was with um, my um, my well, tape, tape op, they used to call him in those days, but assistant engineer, let's say, because um, and he finished up being my engineer, my proper engineer uh, after that. He's um, Jim, Jim Richards, a lovely, lovely lad and still a great friend to this day. And so um, I said, come on, Jim, let, let's let's just, you know, see what happens. So, of course, I've, I'm probably a bottle a bottle of red to the to the worst at this point and um and still going and so it got to about five in the morning and it i was loving it i thought this is sounding so good and um so i'll put that mix down um onto quarter inch and then we finished up actually leaving the studio i came back the next day about i don't know one or two o'clock and um went went in to listen to it and it 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 was kind of like it sounded good, but there was no real bottom end to it because in my drunken <laughs> stupor, didn't really realise that the bass drum wasn't really loud enough. So I lifted up that a little bit, but then I thought it sounded it didn't sound quite it didn't have the same energy. And when I played it in the car, it kind of lost the energy. So so then I pulled it back a bit, and then for some reason, it sort of that snare was just thundering through. I thought that's the vibe i want it to be i wanted to have that snare just crashing through so um and that was the mix of the, that finished up being the, the final mix um so that that was me absolutely three parts of the wind pissed out of my head um it was just a a, a, a lucky a lucky moment a lucky moment to think <laughs> oh maybe it's a cover maybe it wasn't a cover to, and then this thing just is the most massive hit uh, like, unbelievable, you know, yeah. across the pond, everything it just oh, goes wild. Yeah, and and at that point, Kimmy's career was kind of like not faltering. I wouldn't say it's faltering, but there'd been a few little dips and troughs, you know, and uh, so it came at the right time. It was just a great moment for that to happen. Um, yeah, and then that inspired 
Um, I think Kim was asked to go on tour with Michael Jackson's um, yeah. a few years later. Or, and it, it just kind of opened up a lot of doors and it pricked up a lot of ears where people would thought, oh, yeah, Kim Wilde, she's, she's done loads, isn't she? I mean, um, yeah, well, I was just like looking at this the other day. We've, we've done like 14 albums, yeah. 14 you know, albums. It's like you, 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 you kind of forget that, that she, she just did so much. Yeah, and um, I think it just opened up a lot of people's eyes and realised she was still there doing it, looking great, singing great, and just doing what she does so well. And also, you delivered, you know, at, at that time, you know, nine you know, around that sort of time in the eighties. I remember as a kid, I was a kind of mobile DJ, and there was that, you know, that that version of that song, you know. But I think it was that "Never Can Say Goodbye" by the Communards, and probably "You Spin Me Around" by Dead or Alive. Those were just the three. Yeah. guaranteed floor fillers yeah you yeah. put three of those together and there was not even the hardest of hearts and the blokiest <laughs> yeah. of blokes at the bar was yeah. going to wander to the dance floor by the yeah. time you'd hit them so, so you know you delivered that perfect anthem and you know and it gave it that you know everyone obviously knows the original so well but uh you know without sort of almost unknowingly you just yeah. gave it a, a, a new sound yeah well that it it, it was, it, there was just so many different aspects and situations and lucky breaks that that, that whole song had. Yeah. Um, it was almost meant to be, Steve, you know. I you know. know sometimes everything is like, that shouldn't have That's happened. It. That shouldn't have happened. That shouldn't have happened. And it does, and then it becomes massive, and it's kind of like, that's that's what this whole thing's about. Yeah, totally. Yeah. That's what the whole podcast's about. Obviously, yeah. on that album, probably before then, you'd already you'd begun to start writing with Kim anyway, yeah. um, and uh, and that was obvious. That was a natural progression. What was going to happen? I'm sure. Um, I think just moving on to close, which was as you said, in a way, not a comeback album, but it was the first one after that one. Um, yeah. Yeah. That in, that song includes, and, and I've said this so many times, and I've said this to you as well, one of the most perfect pop songs that have ever, has ever been written by anybody, has ever existed anywhere, which is, which is You Came. And I know that that's obviously oh, something the two of you wrote together, and uh, I know there's a really lovely story behind that song. Yeah, well, a lot, a lot, a lot of people thought that was about sex. Um, you, you know, you came. Do you know what? I didn't think it was. <laughs> well, it's so weird. So many people say oh, that's a bit risque, Rick, isn't it? What made you come up? Filthy minds, Ricky. Filthy minds, exactly that. It's kind of like you came, you changed the way I feel. No one could love you God, more. Do you know? I've never actually heard that. I've never heard that before. <laughs> <laughs> and so, um, yeah, but no, obviously it was it was about my son. I, I wrote it about my little boy who'd only been born a few months previous, and and I, I just I wanted um, it, it, that, the whole chorus came so so easily, you know. You know when it's um, it's funny sometimes you you just you hit a group of words or a title that inspires the rest of the co chorus. And it all came so quickly. Um, but the actual song wasn't, that was, it was the last song to be written on the Close album. The whole album had been recorded and okayed by the record company, MCA. They said, we're happy with that. Um, we don't need any more tracks on the album. As far as we're concerned, it's nailed. You've done it. It's finished. I said, okay. So... But I felt that there was one more. We, I just felt we were one light. We needed one more killer tune. And so I went into um, the studio on, on a, it was on a, 
on a Saturday, when normally I, 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 I'm kind of I'm quite uh, strict the way I work. I normally have, you know, work in the in the week and have the weekends off to spend with family. Um, I've always kind of like had that ethos, that whole family thing is very important to me. And so um, it was unusual for me to go in, into the studio on a weekend, but I, I, it was the only, we only had like two days grace to do this. And um, so I was chatting with Nick, who was then managing um, us. And I said, uh, Nick, I just feel we got, you know, we can do this. Uh, have, we, have we got time? He goes, you've got, you got two days to do it, Rick. I said, okay. So that was the weekend. So I went in there on Saturday morning, set up, turned all my gear on. And in those days, that was a, that was a 10 minute job and it's yeah. <laughs> just getting the whole studio working. And, um, and so I'm sitting there and I've got all my keyboards set up and I started coming up with them. Um, I was, I was, first of all, I played Dare, um, that album. Um, that is even, as I said earlier, to this day, still sounds so fresh and incredibly well produced and beautiful songs, beautiful lyrics. Um, and that was my inspiration. <clears throat> and then I started thinking about some of the other songs uh, that Phil had written in the past. Um, and there was one of the songs uh, that he'd written and it was called Life on Your Own. And the chords were very similar to um, to you came um but they were they were the other way round so that the chorus would go and i would and mine was it was very similar let's say but and the chords were so similar um, but I just started singing the chorus, You Came. I, I thought, that's a, that's a real human league title, You Came. Yeah. Very positive. It just the moment you hear those words, it's kind of like, You Came. Wow, what happened? You know, something happened. For you to say, You Came, what was it that, that, that it meant? And then obviously I thought, well, my little boy being born, that was the whole thing that made my life, you know, you, you came, you changed the way I feel. No one could love you more. Um, you turn my life around. No one can take your place, which the, you can't be kids. You know, your kids are your whole life, aren't they? Always. So um, it just came so quickly. And, and um, so got the, got the uh, chorus nailed. Um, Kimmy, came, I gave Kimmy a ring. I said, look, come down. I think we've got something here. So she came, down. So she came in. And I gave her the backing track with the chorus lyrics. And um, so she said, okay, well, you know, what, what's it about? And I said, well, it's actually about my little boy, but I think lyrically you should try and make it a little bit more global. So it, it's not just about singing about a child. It could be about God. It could be, you know, like finding religion. It could be about meeting a, someone who changes your life um like a, a mate or a friend that just suddenly changes the way you think about life and you know every now and again uh, you, you you meet people and, and they do they change you and they make you look at stuff in different ways um and you know or si just situations that change you 
So maybe bear that in mind. Don't say, you know, this is about a child, a baby, I love babies, blah, blah, blah. Make it about just a feeling that you get when something comes along and changes you. So make it a little bit more global. And of course, she came up with the rest of the, with the, the verse lyrics and she absolutely smashed it. And it's kind of like, it was still obviously about a child to me, but a lot of people didn't see that, you know. Yeah. A lot of people thought, oh, okay, well, that, that sounds like a very horny song. <laughs> I mean, it's, I guess it's that thing is up to interpretation. I mean, everyone, you, you, it means one thing to you. It means something to someone else. But uh, yeah, yeah. yeah, it had a really universal um, feel to it, I think. And obviously that album also has Never Trust a Stranger, which is just such an anthem. And, yeah. you know, it seemed like you and your sister, the moment you started writing songs, it was just, it just clicked straight away, right? Yeah, really. I mean, it, it's funny at that at that time. Um, I remember "Stranger" came a very similar way. That came very quickly. Um, I, uh, same thing in the studio on my own. Just came up with a, all the backing track, and the whole thing was pretty much recorded. Um, and I came up with the title and and the chorus. Oh, never trust a stranger with your heart. Well, no, done. That's your chorus, you know, and it, I didn't know what it was about or, but that was the title. And I said to Kimmy, Kimmy, there's your title, um, you know, see, see what you come up with. And she went away, wrote, wrote and cred again, smashed it with the lyric. She's a great lyricist. Kimmy. Yeah. She so is, you know, and um, so underrated, I think, as a writer, Kim. She, she's got a beautiful way with words and keeps it simple and punchy, but really really sells the message you know but similarly i think you know it's it should it's it's fair to say or it's right to say that you know the production on that especially you know the production on stranger your production on stranger is just beyond epic i mean you know you i always think with your productions when i used to listen to them i always thought oh yeah he's gone as epic as it can get and then you hear someone like never trust a stranger go oh no he's got more epic in him they can <laughs> It, but it was precise. Do you know what I mean? It was. It wasn't just like a wall. It was. It was a wall of sound. I always think you have that. You're very good at that. You know, synth guitar version of Spectre. Almost you are. I think because you've got that. You have a wall of sound, but it's a detailed wall of sound. It's not just a mush. Everything's oh. there for a reason. Oh, um, it's lovely to hear you say that, Steve. Because I'm me being a huge fan of, of yourself as well. It's when you hear stuff like that from you from your peers it's, it's a wonderful thing and thank you for saying those but it's it's orchestrated it's really you know it's orchestrated really really well and you know i think it, it, you know when you pick apart what actually goes into that there is a reason for every arpeggiator there's a reason for every little brass synth and you continually have those you know those kind of crashes and bangs and little things that only happen once and yeah. you know it's detailed production um, but at the end of the day, it smacks you in the face, which... Um... Well, a, a lot of that is having your own studio, Steve, I think. In, in those days, it was it was quite unusual uh, for, for someone to have the luxury of being able to yeah. spend that kind of time on on, on production. And um, so it was, I, I was very privileged to have, uh, you know, some great synths. At that time, we had Fairlights by this time and we had Synclaviers and... Um, it had some amazing synths. Um, and I mean, for anyone listening that, that that is unaware, um, a Fairlight was almost pretty much the price of a small house at that point. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and, I mean, I, I think, um, well, I, I, I bought Synclavia and it, I, I had the, the, the cut price version because um, it, it, 
that there was a bigger version you could buy that was like three times the price. But the version that I bought then was 30,000 quid. Wow. Yeah. And that that's kind of like... Which the is in the 80s. That's a yeah. lot more money yeah. now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So... It was, uh, but yeah, I just didn't even think about it in those days. But the, you know, through that, um, uh, through buying that one, I, I, I think I wrote a second time on on the Synclavier, and so that kind of paid for itself immediately. You know, from yeah, the- and and you know, you you're up there, you're looking at contemporaries like people like Trevor Horn and looking at yeah. the gear they're using and going and you know whether it's them or Pet Shop Boys and stuff and going, okay, well, this is yeah. what we need to compete. Yeah. And- oh, t- talking of Pet Shop Boys, the um. The Never Trust a Stranger, uh, I will say that um, Julian Mendelssohn played a massive part in the single. Oh, we love Julian. Because, um, yeah, incredible talent, who lives now in Australia. He's in Australia, yeah. And um, bless him, incredible talent, who, who did a lot of the uh, Pet Shop Boys mixing. And um, and I gave him the bell to say, look, I've, we've, we've done the album version and it's been out, but it's going to be a single. And I just know that you could make this sound even more epic than, my, yeah. than what it is on the album. And I know you can do it. And he said, yeah, fuck it, let's do it. So he came into the studio. The first thing he did, a little joint, got the, got the two-inch upside, like listening to all the tracks and said, yeah, okay, I, I hear you. I know where, where we're coming on this. And so I just let him do his wizardry for... For a few hours and went out and just came back with a with a beer and said uh hey getting on he goes yeah it's all sounding good played it and it sounded glorious yeah it's like oh you genius that's exactly what i was looking for so um yeah I'll, I'll, julian fantastic julian yeah amazing obviously responsible for a lot of uh pet shop boys and go west and and so many uh of those classic brilliant 80s extended mixes as well where you almost got to hear a little bit beneath the hood yeah. of of what was going on in the production because you got a nice little 8 minute version of it. Yes. Um, yeah. so and and actually you know a lot of the things that with today's technology would be something very very simple. Yeah. You know, but you know Julian used to do that thing where you know, on the when he was doing those kind of bangs and crashes mixes, you know, he would be like literally shattering plates in a live room and sampling yeah. them and then triggering them off the snare. You know, it's, uh, yeah, he was it, a trailblazer. It, it really was. He really was. So, um, just moving on to, uh, I, I'm not going to go through every record, but it's just, it's quite, <laughs> I've got a little question about, I like to be quite precise. Um, I think on from Love Moves to me felt like, uh, kind of almost like a soul record yeah if that was was the intention of taking it into something a bit more soulful yes i mean that's something that uh, kimmy wanted to um explore um it, I, i'll be honest it wasn't really um cj mcintosh came in and did some, some work on that one i think it, yeah, but I mean, I'm thinking of, of 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 songs like Perfect Harmony, which is very much like a Motown song to me. Yeah, yeah, it was. Um, it was like a, it was a, it was a, it was a, it, it was a, I mean, even on the, the productions that you did, it felt like a move away from your sort of trademark sound into doing something a bit different. Yeah, I, th- I think all of us were, were decided to to do something a little bit more different to what we had done before. Um, I, it's it's funny it, when you when you work on a certain sound and you're used to doing that kind of sound yeah you, you're almost expected to do that and yeah. I think the moment you're expected to do it that then that I, I find it I lose the excitement for that yeah 
Yeah, I get it. So I, I, like, I like the idea of keeping people guessing and yeah. what's this one going to be like? And yeah. rather than do the same old, same old. Yeah. Um, I think musically, um, inspiration wise, I don't think I was that inspired by music at that time either. Um, I think there's various reasons why I think things don't quite work for whatever reason. um, World in Perfect Harmony, I was really proud of that. And what you did for that, Steve, as well, with the mix that you did was just amazing. I mean, you transformed it, mate. You really did. Oh, well, thank you. It was one of the, I was very lucky. It was one of the first remixes that I got to do on, on my own and you know it's the first time we met I remember coming down to the yeah. house and sort of meeting everybody and uh but yeah no it was yeah, it, it, it was genius and I think uh it's also that album has as I've said before one of my favorite songs that you two have ever written which is Can't Say Goodbye just because I just you know that it's my it's all my favorite chords all in one record and well, that, was, that, that was um actually Kimmy's song. Kimmy wrote Kimmy wrote that all on her own. Oh, okay. Um, and uh, it was the moment I heard it, I just knew it just had something beautiful. Um, and and you decided yeah, Aaron, to let Aaron Friedman. We we wrote that um that I produced that album with. That's right. It's Aaron, and um who's a wonderful talent, um, an incredible programmer, and I learned so much from him. Um, yeah. And he, um, yeah, he, he said it just needs a really nice string section. And, and who else? Well, but, <laughs> obviously, Richard Lyles had to be the one <laughs> after all the Pet Shop Boys stuff that he did. Yes. Incredible arranger, incredible talent. Uh, amazing, amazing. Yeah. So no, it's, it's doing the live strings on it. And that was a beautiful moment uh, in the studio recording those. So we didn't really have live strings in those days. We didn't really record them because. We had so many samples of great sounding strings that most people just played it on, on the keyboard rather than yeah. get a whole a whole orchestra in. I mean, it cost a fortune to do that, but Kim wanted it and we said, okay, fuck it, let's run with it. Yeah. And, um, and yeah, we managed to get the budget, so we did it. And yeah, no, it's, it's fantastic. It's a beautiful song, absolute stunner. So kind of moving on from that, you've got such a really good back catalogue. I'm guessing that it was just live shows were happening, you know, spending a huge amount of your time on tour, right? Yeah, yeah, it was. Yeah, we were doing quite a few gigs at that point. Um, uh, yeah, and obviously uh, with doing the Michael Jackson tour, uh, Kim was uh, involved in that, and then the Bowie tour after that, um, supporting. And it was, um, it was a, a wonderful time for Kim and uh and uh, so she was doing a lot, a lot of promotion and a lot of traveling and gigs, yeah. And is that, a, I presume that's a, a role you relish of being the MD on, on, on a band like that? Is it yeah, so- um, it, having played 90% of the instrumentation on the albums, on all the tracks, I knew, I knew all the right parts. So it's, it's obvious that I can just go in and say to, every musician this is what i played here play that but embellish it and do what do what you do you know give it give it your your feel as well i mean i'm I, you know what i what i play is enough to make it sound okay but um <laughs> i would never say that i'm a great musician or a great guitarist or a great keyboard player but i can i can program to make it sound like i'm better than what i am and when when you have an amazing musician like our our lead guitarist 
at the moment, uh, Neil Jones, who's just wonderful. Um, he's, he's, he's such a classy player and the stuff that he's bringing to, to us, uh, to, our, to the old stuff, you know, is just wonderful. So I, I love hearing other people's interpretations and how, how, how they, um, yeah, how they hear it. And it's, it's lovely for me. I was actually going to ask you about that. There's been a lot of uh, some good, some excellent, some terrible versions of your songs over the years. I wondered if you had any favourites, cover versions of your songs. Well, I have to say, Kids in America by the Foo Fighters takes some beating. <laughs> oh, well, that's it. You, you, that's it. You just dropped the mic there. <laughs> <laughs> when you get Foo Fighters covering one of your tracks, mate, that is, that is I, I mean... You know, that for me was just unbelievable. I, I, I adore David Grohl, and not just as a musician um, and a songwriter, and, a, and a, his voice is incredible. He's just a legend, you know. He, every interview I've seen him in, he's just brilliant. He's brilliant. He's great, great raconteur. Um, he's just a lovely man. And I've had so many stories um, through people that have worked with him and know him. and everyone to a T, they all say what a great guy and he's he's just my hero in life i think so oh, when yeah. when he cut when he cut you know kids in america that was like i've made it that's it i have i don't care what happens from here on i've made it i'd say it was the most rock and roll version of kids in america i've ever heard but i have to say the version that that Kim did at your other sister's wedding at the end of the night was probably the most rock and roll version I've actually <laughs> ever heard. <laughs> I think <laughs> it was it was verging on punk. I think yeah. I have to remember. I don't think I think I may be one of the only people who actually remember it. <laughs> it was the out Foo Fighters, the Foo Fighters. It was it was wonderful. But no, that it's always an honour, isn't it, when someone when you get someone like what well, anybody cover a song of yours, but when it's something like that. Uh -huh. um it's 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 a really good thing i think yeah but there's been you know there's been so many different covers and it's been used in quite a few films and um yeah it's had some 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 of them are yeah are, uh um yeah yeah it's 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 so nice when people do cover your your songs because it's uh it's yeah it's it's like it's nice to be recognized and you know it's cool definitely so just going to sort of move on to uh, the more kind of recent bits and pieces. Whose idea was it to make a Christmas record? Oh, well, that, yeah, again, that was another lucky coincidence, you know, where um, it all kicked off on the train, you know, with uh, me, me and Kimmy. We got, we took a train into London to, to go to a party. I had my guitar. Um, it was, Kim was a DJ at Magic FM at that time and they had their staff party in London and asked her if she would be up for doing a couple of acoustic numbers um, in front of everyone. And so she asked me if I'd be up for it. I said, yeah, fuck it, let's do it. So I took my guitar up and we got up and we sung Kids in America and UKM and a few other things. And it was a really lovely vibe. There was a lot of cocktails flying around that night, I seem to remember. <laughs> It's a bit of a kind of continuing story, this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Red wine cocktails. They're yeah. very, very inspirational. I like it. Very inspirational. It's a wonderful thing. That's why I drink so much. Yeah. And, um, <laughs> and so, yeah, so they they basically plied us with lots of these um, these cocktails, which were delicious. But obviously we got a little bit, a little bit squiffy. 
and we had to go back by train. So um, they dropped us off at the train station and we got on the train and it was just before Christmas and Kim, um, it was quite busy, the, the carriage, and Kim nudged me or digged me in the ribs and she said, um, get the guitar out, we'll, we'll sing a few Christmas songs. I said, are you sure? <laughs> yeah, I said, it's quite busy in here. She goes, yeah, come on, let's do it. Get the guitar out, come on. So I, you know, I, I wasn't going to have an argument with her on the, on the carriage. So the next thing I <clears throat> find myself getting the guitar out of the case and strapping it on, we started playing and started singing songs. And a few people were joining in and it was a really nice little vibe. A couple weren't. A couple were looking very serious, thinking, oh, aye, aye, what we got? We've got some nutters here, you know. <laughs> um, but then there's this one... one uh, lovely lady um, who recognised Kim and got her phone out and started recording it. And then the next thing is, um, it's gone viral. And literally the next morning I woke up, turned on the TV and Sky News had a picture of me and Kim on a train singing Kids in America. And it was like, Kim Wilde gets in the spirit on a train and blah, blah, blah. And it's like, oh my God, what, what happened? You know, <laughs> and it's like, it was, it was a nightmare because I just didn't remember. I really didn't remember what happened. And I thought, my God, what, what happens next? You know, and then it all finished up. Everyone was, it was all cool. I thought, Christ for that. And then, so obviously I phoned Kim up, said, have you seen what's been going on? She said, I know, Rick. I she said, I'm so embarrassed. And she said, I can't even watch it. She, and I, I think to, to this day, she hasn't watched it. She's so embarrassed by it. And, um, but it, it, it just had this, it captured a lovely moment. And, um, um, and through that, um, everybody wanted to get a piece of Miss Christmas, i.e. Kim, um, over Christmas. So Kim thought, well, do you know what? I'm going to embrace this and let's, let's make a Christmas album. We've never done it. Um, you know, let's write some new ones and we'll do a couple of classics as well. And I said, yeah, come on then, let's do it. And, and so the whole album came, came about, uh, we, we recorded it that year. Um, and then it was released the, uh, the following Christmas, which is lovely. That's amazing. Um, it's, yeah, it, but that triggered it. The train thing, the whole that whole train thing triggered the the idea and the was the inspiration behind it. A, another lucky, a, a lucky situation there, mate. And did you find yourself, as so often with Christmas records, uh, you're recording it usually in the summer, so yeah. it's. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah, I was I was so over Christmas by the it's time. The most bizarre thing, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Also, your your love of harmony must have come in really, really, really helpful there when you came to figure out all the harmonies on Keeping the Dream Alive for when you did the deluxe. Yeah, what a beautiful song that is. I yeah. know. I mean, it's effectively a Beatles song, really. It's a yeah. kind of lost Beatles Christmas song. Yeah. But, um, it's the most beautiful song. And, um, yeah, no, it's, it's, it's a lovely one to record. And, um, no, I've, I've got nothing but wonderful memories. And it was lovely bringing the band in to record that as well because up until then, um, I'd... As I said earlier, I'd kind of like I I used to play everything on. I, I was playing everything on most of the albums. Ninety percent, I was uh, it was me. But now and again, we get a brass section in, or a you know, or a session player for sax or whatever. And but it, by and large, it was me playing on on everything. So it that was like one of the first albums that we we actually 
got the whole band involved and recorded stuff up at rack again uh, with with real musicians and it was a beautiful process to to write and, and record um and it just sounded so warm and such, such a lovely sound to it and it, a lot of that was sean vincent who's um kim's manager now um but sean was doing our out front sound at the time and he he's he does a lot of mixing for me because he's he's just so talented as, as uh, mixing is a different animal to programming and writing um it's such an intricate part of of making a the making of a record and the, probably the most important part and um it's i find having sean there to to mix um the stuff that i'm working on it, it just gives me a little bit of headspace to be able to just stand back a little bit and and take stock of the big picture rather than concentrate on intricacies that that needn't be concentrated on if you know what i mean it's nice to to have someone else come in with fresh ears and say look that's this is where we are with this and i can then think okay yeah that i love that i love that and sean is master at it he's just he's got a beautiful setup at home with some incredible eq systems and um, lovely compressors and uh, he, he just gets an incredible sound and the whole album just sounds so warm and and peaceful and uplifting um, and yeah a lot of that was Sean. I think as well there's I can definitely agree that that that's a lot to do with the mix but also it's a lot to do with <clears throat> I think you know Kim's voice is always, it always has a personality to it. It has a warmth to it. It's one of those voices that you can tell within two words that it, that it's her. And yeah. I think people have always uh, reacted really strongly to that. So to do a Christmas record, you know, as her voice has matured and it has even more of that warmth and when she can sing, you know, for, for so much of her career, it's the anthems, it's the kind of massive songs. But even going back to you know, songs like Four Letter Word and things like that, there really? was always a beautiful, soft, warm side to her voice, which I think yes. yeah. really, so everyone thinks, everyone thinks everybody can make a Christmas album and I don't believe they can because I do think you have to, the engagement and yeah. the person, it has to be with the person singing. So I think that believability in her voice is, yeah. it's Christmas songs aren't just singing songs. They're, yeah. they're kind of, you have to have an emotion that goes across with it. Um, so I think it was really good timing for her to do that as well. I totally agree with this thing. I, th I think Kim's, Kim embraced that album with 100% heart open and you can really feel that. And um, it's it something she she, lo she loved the whole process. Uh, we all did. It was, it, was a, it was a wonderful time to to be doing it and, and she really believed in it and and we all believed that it was the right time to do it. And I think back in the eighties, we wouldn't have, we just wouldn't have done an album like that. We wouldn't have done a Christmas album because um, it maybe it, it wouldn't have been as credible and cool to do that. But at this stage in our lives, we just thought, do you know what, let's do it. And let's really, really embrace it. And, and she most definitely did. You can tell that. Yeah, it's, it's wonderful. It's wonderful. Um, there was a, a, a bit of a break and then <clears throat> the kind of comeback was, I mean, I say it's comeback. She never went anywhere, but or you never went anywhere. But the comeback was, was so spectacular with um, with Here Come the Aliens, not only because of the imagery around it and the tour and everything and the incredible <clears throat> the um, incredible single uh, radio record, Pop Don't Stop, that I know you co-wrote with your daughter, which was just huge. Um, the other thing on that record that 
I'd love to talk to you about is um, how you got involved with one of my favorite artists in the world, Frida Sandemo. Oh, yeah. And Rosetta. Well, yeah, well, um, our mutual dear friend, Lee Bennett, who's, um, who runs um, his own blog, um, Teases and Dares, named after one of Kim's albums. Um, he's, he's always been a massive Kim fan. And over the years, uh, I, I, got, I got friendly with him. I, I met him after a gig. Um, I went out front after we'd, we'd done the show, uh, just having a few drinks with the guys. And Lee came up to me and said, Rick, I really, really just wanted to come up and say hello. I'm a huge fan. And he started talking about some of the, the old tracks that I'd been working on for years back old B-sides and stuff. I said, my God, you are a fan, Lee, aren't you? He said, Rick, I know everything. I know everything about you and everything about Kim. And he, he does, he just, he's, but it isn't just Kim stuff. He knows so much about music. Uh, I've never ever met anybody who is so insatiably hungry for new music. Every Thursday, every, Every, well, every day, actually, he's trailing the uh, the internet for new bands and new sounds. And um, since the day I met him, we've just got so close as as friends. He, he's just a lovely, lovely man. And um, and I do I, I feel really lucky to to have him in my life as, a, as and call him a dear friend. And um, and he's always sending me new songs. Oh, and the best of, he says, I, I filter out all, all, the, all the rubbish for you, Rick, and I'll send you all the good stuff. And, and he does, he just sends me so many fantastic new bands and new songs. And one of them happened to be Frida Sundemo. Um, and it was the EP that she, uh, that she brought out. Um, uh, in Indigo. <clears throat> and it was just stunning. It just totally blew me away. Her voice is, is so crystal clear. And through that, um, he, he, uh, he said that she's coming over and she's doing a gig. So I said, well, I've got to come and see that. Um, unfortunately, he couldn't make it on the night. Something cropped up. But I went down there. It was in a pub in South London somewhere. And weirdly, Nina went to that same show. We only found out recently in the last couple of weeks, but she was a huge fan as well. Um, but we were both at the same gig. We didn't know it then. Um, and Frida was just absolutely incredible. Um, and she was there with her, um, with her sister in the band as well. And her sister's got a beautiful voice, very similar to, to Frida's. And so it's lovely to see them and see them work together and the ba her band and hear those beautiful records machine was just an absolutely stunning track um well the whole ep was amazing and um yeah so that's where i i i knew of her through lee and then we we were recording the track um for the album for the aliens album rosetta and i felt that it it would just be lovely as a duet and it'd be lovely for kim to be singing with another girl and I, I then I was on a plane with with Kimmy on the way to a to a gig we were doing, and I was listening to it in my headphones, and I'd only just listened to one of Frida's tracks as well. Well, Frida's track on this could be absolutely stunning. I wonder if she would be up for doing it. So I gave Kim a nudge, and I said, "Look, I've got this idea, crazy idea. How about Frida to do the uh, duet on Rosetta?" 
with you. And she said, my God, that'd be fantastic. How do you get hold of her? I said, well, I do, we, we do chat on Twitter. So I could send her a message on Twitter and see what, you know, she might not get back, but she might do. So the next thing, sent, uh, got off the plane, sent, sent a note, fancy doing a duet with Kim on a, on a track that we've, that we've done for her new album. And she got straight back and said, send me the track. I'd love to have a listen to it. Send her the track. And then the next thing she's recorded at Stems. So Stems come over to, to me and it's just, oh, this is amazing. How amazing, you know, to be working with Frida um, was wonderful. But um, we, we uh, yeah, I, I, I met her very briefly after the, after the show um, that she did in South London before it all happened. And she was beautiful and really, really sweet. And, um, but I haven't met her since. And uh, I, I know we're going to bump into each other one day and um, it'll be lovely to see her. But she's, yeah, I'm a real fan of hers. Massive fan. Absolutely. And again, you know, she's, another person who's uh, who who loves that textured sense and yeah. you know analog sound and i mean you mentioned the incredible nina there who bring it right back up to date i mean you worked with nina on synthian last year which was yes the yeah. most i've said it was you know top one of the top three records of last year it was extraordinary what um what what they were able to do with that um was that again an introduction through lee yeah, through Lee and there's um, Lee and I. We we, we both uh, love a band called the Midnight, um, who are kind of like oh, they're, yes. they're kind of like the kings of synthwave. You know, they're doing all the all this beautiful '80s sounding records, um, but with a real current flavour in Tin's voice. So lead singer, he's, he's just got this most gorgeous voice. And um, so um, you know, both Lee and I are massive fans. And so we met up before the gig. It's a, a scala up in the King's Cross. And before the gig, we met. Um, we decided we were going to go for a Five Guys. So we went into Five Guys having a chat because we had like half an hour to kill. And um, so Lisa, so what you know, what you what you up to now? And I said, well, we're kind of like uh, you know, we finished the album, uh, the Aliens album, and um, yeah, that had been done for a while. Um, and he said, well, what are you, who are you working with now? And I said, well, no one really, but probably to start writing for the next album, I guess, you know? And he said, well, have you thought about working with that other people? And I said, well, yeah, but, you know, not seriously. And he said, I'll tell you who you should work with. And I said, go on. He said, you should work with Nina. I know she's doing an album at the moment and you would be perfect working with her. I said, really? I said, yeah. And he had sent me a few of her songs before before that um beyond memory i think it's what it was the one mm. that said, beautiful track and i loved i loved her vibe and i loved her sound and i and i loved her voice and um so i said yeah okay well i'll, I'll definitely bear that in mind anyway so we walk out five guys we're walking up to the gig and there's a massive queue of people trying to get in and right in the middle of this queue was this beautiful blonde lady and of course it was nina and it's kind of like, it's just so weird. You know, Lee said, that is Nina in the queue. I said, <laughs> really? <laughs> he said, that's Nina over there. He said, right, that's it. We, we have to, we have to say hello. Anyway, so, um, so yeah, so we all got in there and we're in the room and it's like 10 minutes to go before the band's on. And Nina just happens to be very near us. And Lee, just, uh, Lee um, went over to her and said, um, 
I'm Lee Bennett. I, I, because he, he, he had blogged about Nina's uh, tracks in the past, and so she knew of him as well. And um, she said, "Oh, lovely to meet you, Lee. Thank you for saying all the lovely things about all, all, all the tracks that I've been working on." And uh, Lee said, "Oh, lovely to meet you too." And I'm here with Ricky Wilde, and Ricky wrote or Kim's she said I know Ricky Wilde my god how lovely to meet you and and there was this lovely moment of, of us just talking about music and stuff and I said so what how where are you with the album she goes well I'm I'm too we're about too sure and I said well if you want to come up to my studio and do a bit of writing I'm, I'm up for doing a bit of work so she, and then the next thing she was here with Law um and we wrote the yeah the two the two tracks Runaway and gave up on us, and that finished up being uh, the uh, two tracks on the album. And and I just loved working with her, um, and Law as well. That she's an incredible energy, Law. Um, but Nina just had this real. I was, I was saying this uh, earlier, Steve. She, she, I mean, she's a lovely kid. She's very gentle, beautiful, soft voice, and just a lovely vibe about her. But there's a real steeliness about Nina, really tough and focused, and you you just know that there's so much more to it, to that girl than what she gives away, and um, and it's it's a wonderful process working with her. She's she's so positive and she's very open-hearted, and I love I love people with open hearts, and she's very trusting, you know, and she genuinely loves the the music that she's making as well, even though in the same way as the Midnight, you know, they're younger people that are making 80s inspired music. But I was saying this to someone the other day that, you know, 80, the moment the machines were involved in making records, things no longer really became dated in, in the way that if we were in the, 80, in the 80s when you were growing up, you heard a record from the 60s, it sounded old-fashioned. But in 2020, if you hear, you know, the Weekend single... And then you yeah. hear "Take on Me" by Aha. Yeah, the difference is, is there's a yeah. difference, but it's yeah. the moment. It's electronics. Electronics, especially with people, you know, like The Weekend and like Doer and and people like that, going back to using some of the synths that we used then. Yes, it yeah. weirdly doesn't now sound old fashioned. So someone like a young artist like Nina it yeah. wants to make a record that sounds like the '80s because weirdly the '80s is has never really been not cool. No, no, and still sounds fresh. Yeah. Every now and again, there'll be like an 80s track come on that bypassed me for whatever reason. Yeah. And I'm thinking it's a new track, you know. Yeah. And so it, that's happened a few times. Yeah. So, it, yeah, there, there is a, a, a definite ageless sound to, 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 to a lot of the 80s tracks. Yeah, yeah. No, it's great. And that takes us kind of up to today where you're back working with Nina and, you know, yeah. writing, writing again, which is, I mean, obviously remotely this time, but... Uh, yeah, you know, um, yeah. It, it's funny the whole re remote thing. It's uh, we were talking about this the other time, the other day. It, it's it's a people say, how do you write over Zoom? And it's kind of like it does take longer. It's a longer process, um, but you still get it done. And it's when they're with you in the studio, you can just chat with them and say, you can hear immediately they'll sing something, and you can hear that they can sing it. Whereas if you're working remotely, you, it, you probably have to send the track over, they sing it, send it back to you. You think, okay, maybe change this, maybe change that, send it back, they change it, send it back again. And it's kind of like, there's a lot of back and forth stuff going on with it, but it works. And it, it's kind of nice because it gives you time to 
kind of uh, live live with it more rather than make decisions quickly. Um, it is a longer process, but I think in some ways it's kind of it's a good thing because it makes you it draws you into what 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 they're trying to say rather than make the decision there and then and bypass stuff that maybe you might have missed. It's nice to to, to live with it for for a little while. So it does take longer, but I think that's not I don't think it's a bad thing. No, no, I think it's good. I think, you know, you just find a way of making it work and it's, you know, hopefully not going to be that much longer before you can kind of be together. I mean, I know that uh, you and Kim have got a few shows sort of coming up this year, but obviously the big one is is still next year for the big tour. Is that right? Yeah, that's right, yeah. The big uh, greatest hits tour uh, that like, that we were talking about the set list for last January. Yeah. <laughs> Which yeah, is good because yeah. I don't think I don't think either of you had really made up your mind what should go in it. So you you won't have an excuse by next year. <laughs> no. Um, <laughs> so well, what, what do you leave out? That's the question. That's the hardest thing. Well, do you know what um, Lee Lee Bennett Lee knows Kim's catalogue better than we do. And yes, he but knows. we also we also know that Lee Bennett would want a B-sides and album tracks show. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it's called Greatest Hits. Yeah, it's, it's very true. It's <laughs> very true. But um, but bless him, he he uh, we I, I gave him a bell. I said, look, Lee, would you come up and just have a discussion with Kim and I in the studio, and we'll discuss what songs should definitely be in there, and what others that might not need to be there. Mm. And um, and bless him, he came all the way up, and we we spent. A good, well, a good four or five hours chatting about set list, and and um, and by the time he left, we had a really tight little set list. So, there were a couple of reminders in there for both of you when he mentioned a song and you looked at each other and went, Yeah, (laughs) I I remember that. I I think most of them are like that, Steve, to be honest. (laughs) You know, Kim and I were just so used to in in our news that we're always in the zone of like new tracks and and old hits old hits to new tracks but we're all the all the other stuff we don't we just kind of like forgot forgotten about really and um so it's lovely to hear lee's beautiful input and and to hear what he says about you know some of the ideas he has and what we should definitely do and not fan favorites because he he knows all the fan favorites as well so it's it's yeah i think we've got a tight little set now and um I say little set, so it's probably not not far off two hours long. Um, but yeah, I, it's it's going to be fun, and I can't wait to do, get on stage. And that's that's the forty first anniversary tour, then, is it? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you could probably say fortieth ish. I suppose yeah, yeah. the album came out in eighty one. You were probably writing it in the late eighty. I don't know. You could uh, just about it, make it forty. It's a shame, really, because it, um, had the tour have happened. Um, which obviously didn't because of the COVID situation, but had the tour have happened, Kim would have been 60 on that year. Yeah. And it would it, and it would have been 40 years um, anniversary. And it all kind of like, it all looked a perfect time to do it. You know? I think it can still be. I, I, I think most people, like my friends who've had birthdays in the last year, say they don't count. Uh, yeah. Because <laughs> <laughs> the last year hasn't really been a year. So yeah. that, there's, everyone's just lost a year. So you could still call uh, it the 40th. Yeah, I'm happy to do that. Yeah. I'm, no, I think it's great. It'd be amazing to uh, to see everyone back on stage and, uh, and and doing their thing. And I know obviously you will have an opportunity to do that 
this year again as a part of the Let's Rock concerts and which are all... Yeah, well, we're, we're also um, supporting Culture Club in, in, um, in July. Oh, fantastic. Yeah, um, so we got two gigs with them, so I'm looking forward to That's that. That's brilliant. Oh, yeah, I wow. think we're only doing like 40 minutes or something like that, but we're, we're just doing oh, the... fantastic. Up, like, like you do, you know. Is that an outdoor gig, is it? Yeah, those two. Yeah. Um, oh. I where they are now, but um, they're, they're, I think they're doing four gigs and we're doing two of them, so oh. lovely. Brilliant. You have to just, yeah, get into rehearsals then. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> get back into rehearsals. Yeah, yeah. yeah. get yeah. back in the swing of it. Yeah, I look forward to that. Um, yeah. It just, out of interest, you know, just to sort of finish up, there's obviously a lot of your story is to do with the fact that you're very self-driven. You made a very big decision at a very pinnacle moment to say, I want to make, I want to see if I can do this. Um, there's still options available to do that now for kind of younger producers and writers coming up. Um, do you have any advice or anything that you say to people that want to get into the industry now when it is, obviously it's easier to do it because the the technology is there that you could do stuff in your bedroom and also the communication is there with all of the social media but also you're living in a world where forty thousand tracks get put up every day to spotify yeah so i wonder what your advice would be to someone up and coming well if <clears throat> my my only advice i can give is is whatever you do whatever you produce and whatever you write as long as you absolutely adore it that's the most important thing because if, if you do, someone else will. And it might be millions, it might be 10 people. You don't know, but as long as you adore it and you believe in it 100% and it's express, you're expressing yourself exactly how you want to be perceived in that track, that's the most important thing. Don't care about other people saying, oh, I don't like it because. If, it's, if you love it and it's your passion showing your, your and you can express that that's the most important thing and it's it's success will come it will come it, in whatever form but it it won't if you don't believe in what you're doing if you don't believe in it how can you expect anybody else to believe in it there are so many people doing what you're what I'm doing you know what there's so many people doing it and so you just have to be a bit original a little bit different, but believe a hundred percent in what you're doing and make sure it's the best of your ability. That's all I will say. Brilliant advice. That's amazing. And a great way to end. Thank you, Ricky, so much for uh, chatting me to me today and, uh, and Steve. going into such detail. And I've, uh, I've been allowed to nerd out and ask questions I've always oh. wanted to ask you. So it's uh, really wonderful. Thanks so much. Steve, it's been an absolute honor. I mean, you're a hero of mine and it's so lovely to talk to uh, to, to your peers mate it really is and it's um thank you so much for, for asking me it's been an absolute pleasure no worries i shall see you soon in the flesh for a cup of tea in your garden with the guitar i really <laughs> look forward to that mate so it's been all nice. right i'll see you soon oh lots of love to you steve you take care